Section 33 of Mark Twain's Autobiography. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by John Greenman. Mrs. Morris's illness takes a serious turn. Cabinet officers urge President to disavow violence to her. A discussion in the case. Mr. Shepard criticizes the President, and Republican leaders try to stop him. Special to the New York Times. Washington, January 10th. Mrs. Minor Morris, who on Thursday was dragged from the White House, is tonight in a critical condition. She seemed to be on the road to recovery on Saturday, and her physicians held out hopes that she would be able to be out by Monday. At the beginning of this week her condition took an unfavorable turn, and she has been growing steadily worse. She had a congestive chill today, and has continued to grow worse. It is evident tonight that her nervous system has suffered something approaching a collapse. The bruises inflicted upon her by the policemen have not disappeared, a striking evidence of their severity. Her arms, shoulders, and neck still bear testimony to the nature of her treatment. Mentally and physically she is suffering severely. It was learned today that two cabinet officers, one of whom is Secretary Taft, have been laboring with the President for two days to get him to issue a statement disavowing the action of Assistant Secretary Barnes, who ordered Mrs. Morris expelled, and expressing his regret for the way she was treated. They have also urged him to promise to take action which will make impossible the repetition of such an occurrence. The President has held out stoutly against the advice of these two Cabinet officers, he authorized Mr. Barnes to make the statement that he gave out in which the treatment of Mrs. Morris was justified, and it is not easy to take the other track now. On high authority, however, it is learned that the two cabinet officers have not ceased their labors. They both look on the matter not as a mere incident, but as a serious affair. The Morris incident was brought up in the House today, just before adjournment, by Mr. Shepard of Texas. He was recognized for fifteen minutes, in the ordinary course of the debate on the Philippine Tariff Bill, and began at once to discuss the resolution he introduced Monday, calling for an investigation of the expulsion. He excused himself for speaking on the resolution at this time, saying that as it was not privileged, he could not obtain its consideration without the consent of the Committee on Rules. He went on to describe the incident at the White House. He had proceeded only a minute or two when he was interrupted by General Grosvenor, who rose to the point of order that the remarks were not germane to the Philippine Tariff Bill. "'I will show the gentleman that it is germane,' cried Mr. Shepard. "'It is just as proper for this country to have a Chinese wall around the White House as it is to have such a wall around the United States.' well if he thinks it is proper to thus arraign the president and his household said mr grosvenor let him go on if the president had heard the howl of a wolf or the growl of a bear from the adjacent offices retorted mr shepherd the response would have been immediate but the wail of an american woman fell upon unresponsive ears there had been several cries of protest when General Grosvenor interrupted Mr. Shepard, many of whose Democratic friends gathered about him and urged him to proceed. They applauded his reply to Mr. Grosvenor, and the Ohioan 
did not press this point these unwarrantable and unnecessary brutalities continued mr shepherd demand an investigation unless congress takes some action we shall soon witness in a free republic a condition where citizens cannot approach the president they have created without fear of bodily harm from arbitrary subordinates mr shepherd had nearly reached the close of his remarks when mr paine the titular floor leader of the republicans renewed the grosvenor point of order mr olmsted of pennsylvania in the chair however ruled that with the house sitting in the committee of the whole on the state of the union remarks need not be germane mr paine interrupted again to ask a question if a gentleman has the facts upon which to found his attack he said does he not think the police court is the better place to air them the suggestion is a reflection upon the gentleman himself although he is a friend of mine replied shepherd when the speech was finished grosvenor got the floor and said he had been aware of the rules when he did not press the point but i made the point he continued merely to call the attention of the young gentleman from texas in a mild and fatherly manner to my protest against his remarks i hoped he would refrain from further denunciation of the president he has introduced a resolution which is now pending before the proper committee that resolution asks for facts and i suppose that the gentleman would wait for the facts until that resolution is brought into the house i know no difference in proper conduct between the president's office and household and the humblest home in this nation but i don't believe a condition has arisen such that the husband of this woman cannot take care of the situation a high government official tonight added to the accounts of the expulsion an incident which he said was related to him by an eyewitness while the policemen and their negro assistant were dragging mrs morris through the grounds the scene was witnessed by the women servants some of whom called out shame one of the policemen pressed his hand down on mrs morris's mouth to stifle her cries for help and at that sight a manservant a negro rushed forward and shouted take your hand off that white woman's face don't treat a white woman that way the policeman paid no attention to the man and continued his efforts to stifle mrs morris's cries the reason i want to insert that account of the morris case which is making such a lively stir all over the united states and possibly the entire world in these days is this some day no doubt these autobiographical notes will be published it will be after my death it may be five years from now it may be ten it may be fifty but whenever the time shall come even if it should be a century hence i claim that the reader of that day will find the same strong interest in that narrative that the world has in it today, for the reason that the account speaks of the thing in the language we naturally use when we are talking about something that has just happened that form of narrative is able to carry along with it for ages and ages 
the very same interest which we find in it today. Whereas if this had happened fifty years ago, or a hundred, and the historian had dug it up and was putting it in his language and furnishing you a long-distance view of it, the reader's interest in it would be pale. You see, it would not mean news to him. It would be history, merely history, and history can carry on no successful competition with news in the matter of sharp interest. When an eye-witness sets down in narrative form some extraordinary occurrence which he has witnessed, that is news, that is the news form, and its interest is absolutely indestructible. Time can have no deteriorating effect upon that episode. I am placing that account there largely as an experiment. If any stray copy of this book shall by any chance escape the paper mill for a century or so, and then be discovered and read, I am betting that that remote reader will find that it is still news, and that it is just as interesting as any news he will find in the newspapers of his day and morning if newspapers shall still be in existence then, though let us hope they won't. These notions were born to me in the fall of 1867 in Washington, that is to say, thirty-nine years ago. I had come from the Quaker City excursion. I had gone to Washington to write The Innocents Abroad, but before beginning that book, it was necessary to earn some money to live on meantime, or borrow it, which would be difficult, or to take it where it reposed unwatched, which would be unlikely. So I started the first newspaper correspondence syndicate that an unhappy world ever saw. I started it in conjunction with William Swinton, a brother of the admirable john swinton william swinton was a brilliant creature highly educated accomplished he was such a contrast to me that i did not know which of us most to admire because both ends of a contrast are equally delightful to me a thoroughly beautiful woman and a thoroughly homely woman are creations which i love to gaze upon and which I cannot tire of gazing upon, for each is perfect in her own line, and it is perfection, I think, in many things, and perhaps most things, which is the quality that fascinates us. A splendid literature charms us, but it doesn't charm me any more than its opposite does. Hogwash literature at another time I will explain that word hogwash, and offer an example of it, which lies here on the bed, a book which was lately sent to me from England or Ireland. Swinton kept a jug. It was sometimes full, but seldom as full as himself, and it was when he was fullest that he was most competent with his pen. We wrote a letter apiece once a week, 
and copied them and sent them to twelve newspapers charging each of the newspapers a dollar apiece and although we didn't get rich it kept the jug going and partly fed the two of us we earned the rest of our living with magazine articles my trade in that line was better than his because i had written six letters for the new york tribune while i was on the quaker city excursion fifty-three for the alta californian and one pretty breezy one for the new york herald after i got back and so i had a good deal of a reputation to trade on every now and then i was able to get twenty-five dollars for a magazine article i had a chance to write a magazine article about an ancient and moss-grown claim which was disturbing congress that session a claim which had been disturbing congress ever since the war of eighteen twelve and was always getting paid but never satisfied the claim was for indian corn and for provender consumed by the american troops in maryland or somewhere around there in the war of eighteen twelve i wrote the article and it is in one of my books and is there called concerning the great beef contract it was necessary to find out the price of indian corn in eighteen twelve and i found that detail a little difficult finally i went to a r spofford who was the librarian of congress then spofford the man with the prodigious memory and i put my case before him he knew every volume in the library and what it contained and where it was located he said promptly i know of only two sources which promise to afford this information took on prices he brought me the book and the new york evening post in those days newspapers did not publish market reports but about eighteen o nine the new york evening post began to print market reports on sheets of paper about note-paper size and fold these in the journal he brought me a file of the evening post from eighteen twelve i examined took and then began to examine the post and i was in a great hurry i had less than an hour at my disposal but in the post i found a personal narrative which chained my attention at once it was a letter from a gentleman who had witnessed the arrival of the british and the burning of the capital the matter was bristling with interest for him and he delivered his words hot from the bat that letter must have been read with fiery and absorbing interest three days later in new york but not with any more absorbing interest than the interest which was making my blood leap fifty-nine years later when i finished that account i found i had used up all the time that was at my disposal and more end of section thirty three mrs morris's illness takes a serious turn a discussion in the case <laughs> 